Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Stages podcast. Now, if you've been listening to my series of conversations from Perth that I recorded recently, you might like to think of them, as I'm starting to, as the hay fever conversations. That's the reason I'm sounding slightly congested in some of the interviews, so uh, my apologies for that. Today, however, my guest from the West is film producer Tanya Chambers. Tanya Chambers always loved the arts, but never thought she'd have a career in them. She speaks with much enthusiasm and an intellect peppered with engaging humour and incredible insight of the local film industry. As the founder and managing director of Feisty Dane Productions, she has produced the comedy feature A Few Less Men, directed by Mark Lamperell, and the comedic thriller Kill Me Three Times, directed by Kriv Stenders. Her list of credentials is extensive. Chief Executive of Screen New South Wales and Screen West, Screen Producers Australia Councillor and Board Member of Perth International Arts Festival, Ausfilm and the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. Impressive accomplishments for someone who almost didn't have a career in the arts. She was very generous in her time with stages, offering terrific knowledge of the film industry and drawing a vivid portrait of the art of making art. Is this the ABC headquarters? It is. They do all their television and film out of here? Yeah. Uh, television and radio? Uh, yes, it is, in Western Australia, um, for Perth at least, and then they've got the wonderful studios all around the state. Yeah. So, And um, you were saying that various production houses are able to utilise the premises to... It's quite exciting. It's, it's become a little hub now. So we have um, The Heights, the TV series that Matchbox and a great gang of West Australian creatives are all making. Um, and then there's a lot of little production companies based here. So we've got probably eight or ten different companies all working out of the same place, um, as well as the great ABC Radio and other people downstairs. Including Feisty Dame Productions. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Which is your company. It is. How did you come up with that name? Um, I actually ended up setting up my production company when I was 50. So I decided to think long and hard about a name that sort of reflected me and I had a good laugh about the notion of a title of dame anyway um, because it sort of makes you think of Maggie Smith and all the others. Um, But feisty is pretty much my nature. So, yeah, feisty dame came out of it. And it's been great, actually, because internationally a lot of people have reacted really well. So you can send emails to people saying hi from a feisty dame or... You know, well, it's a name that registers, isn't it? People, people don't forget it too quickly. Yeah. yeah. I had a bit of a shock because the logo, um, the logo has a woman who's standing there in, you know, heels and and with her hands by her side. And I like to say that it, it looks like she's either going to dance or she's going to punch you, both of which kind of seem very outrageous and fun. Um, but in fact, when I was in America recently, somebody said she's got a gun behind her back. And I was quite shocked to hear that. Wow, that people read that into it. Yeah, in eight years, no one in Australia or elsewhere around the world has ever said that. And I think that's a bit of a sad reflection, really. Yeah, yeah. So you start your production company at 50 after a long career in in film, yeah, in various roles, which we'll talk about through this chat. Do you have a favourite film? Not that you worked on, just generally, just... Uh, I must say one of my favourite films is Shame. So the film that Deborah Lee Furness did that was actually shot here you know, many years ago now and was just restored by the National Film and Sound Archive. Um, and I remember that very strongly because there's an opening sequence where a person on a motorbike in black leathers sort of tears down into a country town and then 
pulls up at the front of a country pub and takes the helmet off and then there's this amazing red hair that comes out of it from this woman played by Deborah Lee Furness. And then it's just such a, a, an extraordinary story. It's unfortunately also a true story. Oh, is it really? Yeah, right, it's right. a true story about what was happening in a town in Queensland at the time um, with sexual assault going through multiple generations and people considering that it was okay um, or at least it was not something that, that was to be dealt with. Um, and I remember that being such a striking woman's role. Um, and then on the other hand, I suppose there's there's another film that really sh- struck me as well, which was Nikita. And so Luc Besson's film where um, she ends up being given an option. She can either become effectively a hired assassin for the stage at their call whenever they wish, or she will remain dead and no one will know that she actually wasn't buried and, and didn't die. And that too, for me, um, the film, not the TV series so much, but that one again was a really strong female character that I hadn't really seen someone who could kick ass like she could. Yeah. Um, and it was a love story as well, and I thought it was just fantastic. Well, they're both feisty dames, aren't they? They are. Yeah. They are indeed. Right. Um, you've said that I always loved the arts but never thought I would have a career in it. <laughs> what were your career aspirations growing up? Oh, I um, I loved languages. So I loved, I, I studied and loved French and German literature, basically, and theatre, um, yeah, literature and theatre, really. I came to film and TV very, very late. And um, I just didn't believe it would be possible to make a living in the arts doing that. So initially I ended up, um, ended up studying psychology and languages, thinking I'd do psycholinguistics. And I did that for a year at, at Monash and decided that absolutely was not for me. <laughs> And then I went back to law and people had said to me that I should do law. That was one of the things that, you know, people said, you talk so much, you should go and study law. And I you know, had, had rebelled against that really, but came back through to it. So I really thought that I would have a traditional legal career and not end up in the arts other than as a, a love and a hobby. And I can't tell you how delighted I am that I have managed to make my career in the arts. You know. It happens a lot, really. I think people find their way into the arts by way of a happy accident you know um it just works out that way yeah well Um, i'm a big believer in that notion of of follow what you truly love you know find what you're driven towards what it is that excites you and compels you and just follow that avenue and see um and what ended up happening with me was whilst i ended up having um a, a well completing my studies moving from Melbourne to Sydney and actually working in a number of law firms at the time as a paralegal all my first year. Um, I then was taken into the ABC as an in-house lawyer. So I was legal counsel inside the ABC at a crazily exciting time. And that's really how I ended up getting into film and TV, doing co-production legal agreements and doing copyright and defamation advice and working with some extraordinary people in that field. And bitten by the bug. Oh, yeah, and I, I still believe, too, that once you've got the ABC in your blood or public broadcasting, yeah. you never get it out. Yeah. You know, it's something that, that you'll defend till you die. You might um, actually criticise views at different times or, or directions that people can take, but I think the notion of what you can see that a public broadcaster can, can bring to this world is really quite something. What were the influences, artistic influences on you as a, as a child? Would you have a family that took you to the theatre or...? Uh, not the so much. Cinema? Um, I mean, certainly cinema was there, um, but it was mostly, I think, music. You know, mum always had music around the house. Um, 
our family it was always very open to yeah to to new ideas and trying new things and being quite international in that way of mum would always be cooking different types of international food so my world was fairly broad but I think a lot of it just came from a really wonderful education where people exposed you to things so you know there were drama teachers early you know Philip Reed who who had me reading you know Anzac Day poetry from all around the world and various other things so and some very close and influential friends um, girlfriends who were cellists and pianists and that side of it really was the area of why I got involved in the arts I think. So you fulfilled various leadership roles was that a stepping stone after the ABC I mean you were former CEO of Screen of Screen New South Wales. Yep. Yeah. So how did that come about? Well I think what happened was when I was a lawyer and when I was in-house counsel I decided that I really wanted to be the decision maker not actually the person that was putting other people's decisions into effect and I'm not really conscious of of thinking about it other than that Um, and so I decided to to then move out when I had an opportunity to move into the screen industry through the federal agency at the time doing sort of business affairs so I crossed over through into business work and into the arts that way um yeah I do I do remember I had a very quiet private dream of possibly being a chief executive by the time I was 40 and I don't really know if I ever told anybody that very much um and I managed to do it by 39 (laughs) (laughs) and that was when that was with Screen West when I was the CEO of Screen West over here in WA right did that follow on from Screen New South Wales um no no the other way around Right. Yeah, that was that was quite a shock actually because I'd been here for I think it was six and a half years and I knew the Sydney job was coming up. Um, I just was getting annoyed at the fact that people weren't necessarily considering people from outside Sydney and Melbourne for the gig as far as I was concerned and so I threw my hat in the ring and ended up getting the job. <laughs> so suddenly I was, you know, very, very quick period of time I was off and living in Sydney again. What's the uh, the history of film and television production in West Australia? Oh, it's quite intriguing, actually, yeah. um, because we've had very, well, periods of time that people seem to have forgotten about. I mean, there's there was way back before I was here in Western Australia, there was a film called The Nickel Queen, um, and I think that was uh, one of the first features that was made. But certainly there was a great period of time, the time of Shame and Fran and... Um, father with Max von Sydow and there was an, a number of films there were some in, inbound films around the time features about the time of um, uh, the um, uh, when Wind was made which was when the America's Cup was around that time yep. and then people kind of forgot about the feature films that, or, or the feature films from here sort of disappeared a lot more and there was a long period of time where um where there was children's TV that was very, very successful. Throughout the whole time, there's been fantastically strong international quality factual content. And those documentaries and other forms of factual programming continue to be world-class and they're just doing astounding things. So for decades and decades, that's happened here. But then recently, only in you know sort of a, the last sort of 15 years, I suppose, feature films have come back again and now TV in the context of 
the heights. So it's really started booming over here. Um, and children's series are back again, and I've just finished a children's TV series earlier in the year with a company called Comics called um, Itch for the ABC. Mm. So it's it's an interesting background over here because people don't necessarily know about it till you point it out, and some of the filmmakers don't know about those earlier films. Um, Noni Hazelhurst won... Um, oh, the it was in a film called Fran, I think, that won the AFI Award for yeah. Best Film that year. So there have been some really great work done out of here. You know. You've been identified as a key leader driving the resurgence in local screen production. How important is it to, to a state like West Australia to have a film industry? Oh, I, I think it's really about community and about culture. Yeah. Um, I think it's fundamental that... I, I feel very strongly about it, really, because I think in a digital world particularly now when we've got the ability to be able to connect with people you know, right around the world so easily, um, there's no excuse for creative talent being expected to move. So I've, I've always spoken about that notion, and it's a worldwide one, I think, uh, that there's an assumption that if you're any good, you would have left and gone to the centre. And that centre may happen to be Sydney or Melbourne, or it might be London versus Bristol, or it might be, you know, you're lucky if people would say it's even New York. Normally it's, you know, LA in the film world. Um, and there's this assumption if you were any good, you would have left and, and gone and explored your creative abilities there. Whilst I'm somebody who's travelled myself and moved from Melbourne to Sydney to Perth to Sydney to Germany to back again stuff, um, I actually think that you can be these days hyper-local and you can be international at the same time. So I think you can actually live in one of the regional areas of this state and you can make great content that affects people right around the world. Um, so to me, the notion that we should concentrate resources in a number of areas in a country only just really doesn't reflect the realities of a creative industry in a creative world. Can you recall your first day on a set, a film set? Oh, yeah, I can, yeah. actually. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's quite funny because a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the uh, crew don't or didn't at that time know who I was. So the fact that I was a producer on um, on this film, um, they, you know, apparently what happened was there were two two female producers, um, excluding the line producer and the male producer, and I was known as the producer that looks like Jamie Lee Curtis, <laughs> which I thought was pretty great. I'll, right. I'll, I'll take that one. Worse, yeah. <laughs> Probably a bit plumper, Julie. You know, <laughs> one but I'm still um, because of my grey short hair, I think. Um, but I do remember that notion of seeing, you know, 50, 60, 70 people all with very clear sense of what they were doing and you having the sense that you just got in the way. Wherever you stood, whatever you did, yeah. you just seemed to be in the way. Yeah. And um, I've actually taken that with me every time I take people on set now and explain to them that context and let them know that you'd be a bit overwhelmed by it all. Yeah, it's a working environment. It really is, yeah. And I suppose often we think of our industry in different ways, but, you know, you look at somebody on a construction site doing a building or the team of people that has to get behind that kind of an exercise, which is also millions of dollars worth, and you realise that you see things in quite a different way because it's, you know, the arts or because it's creative, when in fact it's like many of those other activities of, you know, very sort of clear, hierarchical in a way business. What about some of the issues that women face in the film industry? Um, gender disparity, yeah, yeah. Um, all that sort of thing? Oh, it's, it's something that all of us, I think, are all um, male and female are talking about the whole time these days. Um, Is it getting better? 
I think it is. Yeah, I do. Um, because I believe there is a preparedness to not tolerate bad behaviour anymore. Yeah. Um, there's now proper systems in place so that people know that they can report and they can report in a way that they can either decide that they want it to be official or, or dealt with in the way that they choose. Um, yeah, there's no no doubt at all in my mind that the behaviour that was there in the past is just not being tolerated in the same way. And I think it's happening across society a bit more too, yeah. so that people are being called out for it. Um, and I have to say, I really admire the courage of the people who did stand up early and also many of the the younger people in our industry who do call things out. They just, you know, won't tolerate things that... I must say I tolerate it at different times, yeah. you know, so I'm really pleased to see that. Having said that, um, gosh, there's a long way to go. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt at all that people are not being paid the same uh, pay rates for, you know, m mostly that would be, um, you know, for for various lead roles and, and cast and so on. I think we've got quite a lot of um, parity with the other roles, with key creatives and crew, but the the small percentage of directors, for example, that are women, the the small number of people in writers' rooms that tend to be women, the percentages are just not good enough yet. Um, so I think we're all now actively finding ways to go to 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 ask each other, what are you doing about it? How can you change it? Um, what type of mentorships needed to bring people through? You know, we're doing a lot of um, uh, work ourselves on how we can, as women, we can present ourselves with greater confidence and um, and stand up at times. Um, been talking, I, I do quite a lot of mentorship, I must say, and one of the people I was talking to the other day was asking me about, you know, how to negotiate their their wage for a new job. Um, and there's all sorts of tricks and techniques. But I suppose you, you, don't, you don't necessarily have agents, do you? Your, oh no! Like it's your it's, sole business yeah. people. Yeah, it's intriguing actually because a lot of us, yeah, a lot of us are freelancers, and a lot of us um, don't have the money to pay somebody a cut of what we earn if we do if we earn, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, or when we earn, I should say. And so it, um, yeah, it does become challenging to do that sort of thing. And and a lot of these skills really are fundamental business skills and entrepreneurial skills. Um, because we're running our own businesses, whether we see it that way or not. So it's trying to encourage people as they come through the industry or come into the industry to take that kind of um, responsibility for their, their businesses and to surround them with those skills so they do get greater confidence. What is Gender Matters? Ah, Gender yeah. Matters, I think... Uh, so Gender Matters was an, an initiative, a... a, a a wonderful name that was given by Screen Australia to a particular initiative that it um, created to try and address head-on the issue of key creatives, in particular writers and directors, I think, in the screen sector right across web series, TV and features, um, and try and see if there could be more talent coming through. Um, some of the great colleagues at Screen Australia have managed to, to have success with that. Um, I think... I think what's been intriguing is, you know, originally their comment was you can't fund projects if you haven't got applications to fund them from. Um, and how do we create an environment where more women are actually applying for jobs or more women are applying for um, funding in development or more creative teams have women in them in those key roles? 
Um, and then how do you actually make sure that the projects are developed strongly enough so that the international marketplace and national marketplace says we want to get behind you. Um, and there have been some wonderful successes coming through. So Ride Like a Girl is one of them, yeah. which is just tremendous. And to see the box office success that's already commenced with that film with only you know, a couple, three, couple two or three weeks in the in the cinema is just fantastic. And, um, yeah, so we were very pleased. I'm working with a writer-director, Renee Webster, and we had one of the projects as a feature film script originally as a concept and outline that was funded um, for that. So now we are quite a few years later and we're right on the cusp of that one going into production, hopefully next year. Great. What about at training level, you know, the film schools? It's, um, as far as I know... Uh, pretty much equal numbers right. of women and men are coming out of those film schools. Um, certainly, out of somewhere like I the guess those institutions now FTRS. make it their their role. To, they to they do. That happens. Yeah, and that that also concerns me because um, you know at that point to see that there's a drop off between the point of education and the point of employment, or getting through to have the opportunity to actually direct, for example, or in let's say, in some of the um, units in a cruise. So certainly in the the camera department, you know, it's it's improving, but gosh, there aren't a lot of female cinematographers compared to men, for example. Um, so we have to then find specific ways to be able to um, identify talent and then nurture that talent and then help it to take... Someone's got to give someone a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, each of us in our careers had someone at some point give us a break that uh, made the difference. So what happens to those graduates when they finish film school? I guess they've been watched as they've gone through and people talk. And, but how, how do they sort of break into the film industry? Uh, it's, it's a fascinating dilemma, to be honest, yeah. because on the one hand, sometimes they, students will come out of training believing that they can do anything yeah. and represent themselves, unfortunately, not well because the people that they're going to work with know that they've got a long path to be truly job-ready. On the other hand, um, they have to have some chutzpah or they'd never get through and survive because we describe the screen sector really as a bit like an Olympic sport. You know, there's a great deal of people who would be involved at various levels of career but only a small number who kind of manage to actively make that their profession over the time. So um, we try to find ways of um, introducing those new graduates to established companies um, I've been working in a couple of the unis and educa- education institutions over here to try and talk to people about identifying what it is that makes them different to other people yeah. um, and how they can use that skill to be able to go up and talk to somebody um, in the industry who's already there when there's a networking event and get the courage to do that. Yes, because they're going to be daunting. Oh, terrifying, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. But it, it's surprising how people don't really also necessarily do the homework they need to do you know I talk to graduates and say you wouldn't imagine that you were going to be a brain surgeon or a dentist without doing a hell of a lot of work and study and postgraduate work and you would you know you've got to research the companies go and find out who's actually produced what lately who the major companies are in Australia it's not a hard task to work out and then watch their work before you talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it seems fairly obvious when you say it, but actually it's... A lot of them uh, don't. Yeah. 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 Um, you've been a jury member of the Banff 
International Television Festival and on the Board of Trustees of the Asian Television Awards, TV seems to be the new frontier. The golden age of TV continues with streaming services and the opportunities they are able to provide in the exploration of narrative. Is television a place where those big stories are now happening? I mean, you oh, it's exhilarating, I think. Yeah. Absolutely exhilarating. And it's fascinating because it's so fast how the change is occurring. And also, I always like to try and have an eye to the audience, really, um, because otherwise I don't think we should be in this industry. Um, but looking at how our own behaviours change, never mind the behaviour of others. And, you know, my mum's now in her 70s and she's complaining about having to wait till next week to watch the next episode of, you know, Secret Bridesmaids Business because she wants to binge them. Yes. Um, and I do find that intriguing that... Unfortunately, I do go to the cinema less than I used to. I do watch things and, and make a decision about whether I'm going to watch them at home or even on an iPad or on a plane. Um, but I think I watch probably a lot more content than I used to. And I certainly, I'm, I'm still still in two minds about whether it's good for me or not because I do a lot of binging. <laughs> I can, it's, it's just not satisfying for me anymore to watch one hour of drama. No, no. I, I, I will record or I'll stream or I'll download or whatever something so that I can watch two or three or four or sometimes even and more. that's a fantastic four or five hours oh it's, it's but but the next day I try and think about what I saw or what happened <laughs> and it's just gone yeah it's it, it is funny when you look back and never mind watching films on planes there's something really weird happens when you get off a plane and you can't remember what it was you watched mm-hmm. <laughs> um but I do um yeah I do think that television is creating an, an immense amount of opportunity for people I mean the mm-hmm. the caliber of directing and writing and all of the craft skills my goodness it's just yeah. I think it's fantastic and I and I'm also intrigued as how it's sort of flowing to and fro a bit now. I mean, you look at Downton Abbey, the feature, and the TV series, you know, and you can see why it is that people are now looking at content and how you can use it in every format. You know, you look at Muriel's Wedding becoming a stage show, and that's now becoming more the norm than not. Um, There's a a wonderful production being made in West Australia here at the moment called um, 100% Wolf, and it's a feature film... Um, that's an animated feature film, but it's also a many-part TV series separately. Not the same yeah, animation being used, it's different, but they're being created at the same time. And so it's really quite interesting seeing those, uh, you know, the, those, the separation that used to be there between cinema and TV shifting a bit yeah. in both the viewing and the production area, really. I'm fascinated by those returns to old TV series. They've gathered the cast again from 20 years ago and creating the same you know, Roseanne and yeah, I see and Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah, and now Sea Change. Yeah. And then Evolve as well. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued. I mean, I also didn't see, didn't imagine the spin-off characters that you find when a series then takes one character and becomes something else. You know, yeah. it's, it's intriguing. Yeah. Um, and it, when you look back, back onto it, it seems very obvious, but certainly it hasn't always been so to me. No. Um, at the same time, I still think the experience of sitting in a cinema is quite a special one. Um, I do tend to be fairly selective. I will watch certain really big scale, big visual feast films, particularly ones that I know the cinematography is going to be extraordinary. I will make the effort to go and see those in the cinema. Yeah. Um, 
And then sometimes I want to see some of the smaller independent films with an audience. Yes. And a comedy, I have to say, a comedy at any time is never as funny as when you're actually in a group of people. Yeah. So it's um, it breaks your heart sometimes to see certain projects that you know, productions that would have that were delighting audiences just not getting the time to be able to be seen in a cinema context as well. So. They put uh, television extraordinary budgets. I think Game of Thrones. And, you know, each episode having feature film budget or more it, oh I th- it's it's mad and it's what just they mad. can accomplish yeah and um, that and that to me is a bit of a challenge actually because it our whole lives in you know in this industry are kind of also about being realistic about trying to on the one hand you've got to believe in what you can do and you've got to have ambition at the same time you're trying to make sure that you can live and eat and be realistic about what you can make and I often find my ambition is tempered um, by realities of the current funding structures and the world. I, I suppose my current dream is to at some point get to my a stage in my career where I can actually make a production that could be shot anywhere. Um, I'm a bit crazy at the moment. I'm working on a film that is a tango film that will be shot in both Australia and in Uruguay and we don't have co-production treaties and we don't have the traditional funding avenues that we're used to being able to access in Australia um, at the same level for something that's going to be shot significantly overseas um, without a treaty and so now I'm having to think completely differently about how to do it. There are stories I would love to tell, there's some you know some really great stories that are set in countries all around the world and I look at them and just go I can't see myself being able to make this at this stage of my career Mm. Um, and I'd love to get to a point where I can actually go you know what we could actually shoot here 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 and here for something of scale Um, so that's a little dream. How long can it sometimes take between receiving a script that you think I'm going to make this and then to the premiere? Oh easy can easily be seven years right yeah um, certainly, sometimes it well. It depends on how much development other people have done before you come on board. So, um, I've, I have a project at the moment that officially is probably at eighth draft, and it's getting ready to go into production. Um, others, I suppose, would have had a lot of work before I got to them, and then they happened within two or three or four years. But um, it the process of of actual financing, contracting, making the film delivering the film and getting it out to an audience in itself is a good two years. Wow. So that means that, you know, it, it's a large chunk of your life. Yeah. And then, you know, never mind, imagine what your fee is divided by all those years whilst you're in development. <laughs> That's uh, a bit of a challenge. Um, but, yeah, certainly it can take many years. So I did have a, um, a, a very clever writer once say to me, if you want to work out the rest of your working life, and the number, if you're going to be in features, for example, and the number of features you're likely to manage to get financed during that time, and I suppose it applies to other things as well if you're doing other kinds of creative work, you'd better be damn sure that the ones that you're developing are ones that you're passionate about. Yeah. Um, and that's very difficult to actually get to a certain point in a project's development and then say to that creative team, that's it, I'm actually not taking it further. I guess that happens frequently. Uh, not as often as it should. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have a few yeah. projects that I should be a bit more right. ruthless about. Um, 
and you it's very difficult when the marketplace doesn't see something the way you do and people are constantly saying what it is that the marketplace wants and you know that even when you look at the content yourself or the choices you make about what you go and see you probably didn't know two months ago that you were going to be so compelled by this you know I'm I'm not someone who likes big historical dramas Um, that hasn't really been my background at all I'm very into sort of personal intimate stories often with humor and so on Um, but I became utterly addicted to Game of Thrones I've watched every single episode Um, you know and and on it goes I say that I'm not really a science fiction girl Um, having said that of course I'm completely besotted with Handmaiden Tale you know Handmaid's Tale sorry Um, and have watched every episode again Um, so it's funny you don't necessarily know what it is you want until you see it and that I think is part of the joy of the arts is that it's about us trying to trying to get people's trust and take them to places they may not have been before or emotions they may not have acknowledged for a while in a kind of safe environment and I do think that notion of um, screen productions that can change a society or can actually change the way you think is something that keeps us all going as well Um, you know I was thinking the other day about uh, you know the wonderful impact of that series, what was it, Old Folks old, old folks Home for, for Four-Year-Olds, yeah, you know, yeah. and the delight there. And you can just see that people could give you research paper after research paper or tell you that science proves that, and it would have nowhere near the kind of impact of those wonderful episodes, yeah. you know. Yeah. You know, Don't Stop the Music, another one, with that wonderful thing with Guy Sebastian, wonderful company out of Western Australia with that one, um, you know, teaming up to change children's lives and the way their minds actually work through music. Yeah. I mean, how exhilarating. <laughs> Choir of Hard Knocks. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So um, what are the challenges in um, financing a project? Do you have a bunch of angels that you can ring up? Oh, say? gosh, if only. If only. <laughs> and in fact, that too is one of my dreams, is really to try and be able to deliver back to a group of, of investors returns so that they will come back and come back and come back and there are quite a few people in the industry who are managing to do that one way or another um we have well if you can imagine i'm trying to work out how best to describe it financing any of these productions is probably like a jigsaw and you end up with um multi you probably have somewhere between oh gosh i'd be surprised if you had less than six financing partner partners in any production of any scale through to you know 10 easily um and first off you have to get somebody from australia and new zealand that's actually going to say that they from the marketplace that they want to buy it so you either have to convince one of these very small handfuls of australian distributors who then sell on to the exhibitors and convince the exhibitors to put your film in on the big screen or you've got to get one of the streamers or broadcasters or others to buy it and that's a pretty small pool but because those organisations probably fund, if you're lucky, gosh, between 5 and 25% of the cost of production, all of our Australian productions, by definition, in my mind, are basically international as well. Right. So you then have to get somebody who's going to sell the film internationally or distribute the TV series or production internationally as well. So that's kind of the very basic um, framework 
then you end up with federal funding that supports it and you have to get loans against that money and then you end up with state agencies supporting things and you might get post-production houses that will invest some of the fees you're paying and then you've got other people in as well, um, hopefully some private investors if you're lucky. So it is actually quite a financing exercise. It's, um, you know, I, I had a major property developer recently say to me, you're really talking about high finance. And I said, well, it's not that dissimilar to financing a multi-million dollar, you know, building or development yeah. of, of different kinds. Um, and it is and it is many millions. So you've got a mixture of, of creative skills that you need to have to be able to engage and connect with audiences. And that's a really strong skill set, as you know, about how, how a script works and what the rules are about why something will actually impact upon an audience and make them feel satisfied in whatever genre and then on the other hand you've got really hard commercial finance business and entrepreneurial skills so again it tends to be what is your strength and how can you surround yourself with other people who've got those complementary skills i think it's very difficult to do it these days with one person with all of those skills there's a few fabulous freaks who can do that um, some people that I admire deeply but not a lot of them um, so often we're working in teams and again that gives you your own challenge as well and you've got to love jigsaws absolutely <laughs> and you can be sure that on you, you actually have to have I like to say kahunas of steel yeah. um, you have to have this extraordinary ability to pick yourself up and have stamina because the financing of these projects, uh, nine times out of ten, a major piece of finance will fall out at some point. Yeah. Um, a commissioning editor will leave the organisation and the next person doesn't want to take on your project or one of the international financiers will default, um, sometimes partway through the finance um, or partway through the production, all sorts of things happen and you've just got to pick yourself up, you know, at times have a fabulous tantrum and a good old cry and just rely upon your mates as well to help you get back up there and get back in the ring. And at the same time, you're probably assembling a creative team. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a great joy. Yeah. That's yeah. a great joy. Um, and again, you know, it's hard sometimes because it's such an intense creative relationship with writers, directors and producers. And then, of course, you've got all the great heads of department that you work with. You know, I sometimes describe the relationship between a director and a cinematographer as being almost like Siamese twins where ideally they can almost communicate with each other without words at times and certainly if they've had long-term relationships and so on or working together on different things um, but yeah that's um, it, it really is when you realize how much screen is a collaborative art form when you look at the difference that it makes not just when you've got an extraordinary costume designer or somebody who's able to to make magic out of you know the the art department and production design with very little money but also when you go right through to see how every one of those people if you get one of them that doesn't actually pull their weight the whole thing can fall apart so it's quite um you know yeah quite exhilarating getting that creative team together and and having people who can who, who know when to collaborate and know when to be strong and that's when you sh- start to share the, the jobs, I suppose, each of those new people that you appoint are responsible for another team. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And um, I, I find it intriguing. I mean, just recently working here in the offices alongside the Heights, I've seen again 
a team go from being, you know, maybe five or or so people and then in the space of a few weeks suddenly it's 20 and then it's, you know, you know, 60 and then it's 80 and then it's, you know, zillions of people who are actually being employed in fantastic acting roles from different cultures who haven't been there, had the opportunity before, some of them. Um, so it's... And then, uh, you know, as quickly as anything and sometimes on the feature film shoots we're talking about, we're talking five weeks sometimes sometimes four, sometimes six, you know, if you're lucky, it's more. But basically, frequently, it would be five weeks. And suddenly, the week after that, it goes all quiet again. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the tiny team of you that's actually then in post-production for what can be, you know, as I said, right through to delivery, can be, you know, 18 months later when there's just a handful of you left. So it's um, it's a very unusual working process. And we all go through this kind of um, anticlimactic experience at the end of a shoot as well even though you go straight into post-production but you yeah you sort of suddenly have lost this amazing intense crazy 24-7 kind of you know family that you've been working with I suppose it's not not a lot of sleep during shoot time either uh not a lot (laughs) The, the, the difficulty is you have to actually again you've got to be quite disciplined because it is so demanding you've got to keep reserves in the tank so it was very interesting on our children's series itch that we shot down in albany beginning of the year um that was a 10 half hour kids series and uh whilst we had two directors and we had you know two first assistant um, directors as well working with them most of us were on for the entire time and you've got to be able to be there all the time on time and be able to you know you can't really rock up hung over as anything and yeah. think that you can cope with the incoming Scud missiles that happen every single day. Yeah. I mean, it's quite, I, I, as a producer, I found it, I must say my first production, I found it quite hilarious because every single day at a certain time of the day, some one of the heads of department would come in and say, we have a problem. <laughs> and I thought, after a couple of weeks of this, I just sort of thought, this is just ridiculous, you know. And by the end of it, it was like, yep, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. And essentially you end up just problem solving. And I think that goes right through all of those teams. Their job is to kind of deal with the unexpected. You can plan as much as you like, but there's always something that happens. But that can be quite exhilarating also, can't it? Oh, it's addictive. How boring would it be if everything just went smoothly? Yeah, it's addictive. And unfortunately, it's dangerous too because um, people's lives and families and friendship networks and so on get affected by it. Um, And, um, yeah, the danger is you, you find yourself in a situation where... Sometimes it's a lifestyle choice that's not sustainable and people find it difficult to walk away. Yeah. How do you find your projects? Do you have an idea ah. and then you approach um, a I, team or do you have scripts across your desk? A bit of everything, to yeah. be honest. Um, I've been working with um, a colleague who's been trying to convince me to be a lot more rigorous about that <laughs> because you can spend a lot of time on projects that aren't really ones that you're likely to do. Um I tend to be, I tend to be um, uh, inspired by talent, and that can be a bit dangerous too because I do have to put this business prism over the top of it. Um, a lot of the projects I've got on my development slate at the moment are first-time writers or directors, and gee, that's a hard sell. Yeah. Um, there's no doubt about it, and I, I'm realizing I have to balance that out a bit now. I think with projects that have got people who've already got track records. Um, People want bankable names, don't they? That's right, and and that breaks your heart. I mean, certainly in features, um, as much as I said before that television features are changing, and I think they are, um, 
there is still a view that there are certain cast only that are acceptable to be the ones that are going to cause people to go out to the cinema and pay their money. Um, and yet you come up with examples all the time that break that rule. Um, but trying to get it financed, uh, you know, in the middle of the projects I'm with at the moment, we're going out to try and find definitely the best person for the role, but also somebody who's going to make you pay your money to go. And yeah. you sit there and ask yourself, actually, will I choose to watch this one at home and stream it when it's eventually out with one of these great streaming services, or am I going to make the effort to go and see it in the cinema? And if I've chosen that avenue to tell this story, I really need to work in that context. So, yeah, but projects, um, it's its amazing, it's fascinating, the myriad of ways they can happen. Um, it can be, you know, a, a, a news article, for example, that catches your attention. It can be, you know, I'm just thinking not that this necessarily... Um, it was the way this came about, I don't know, but the, the Hunting, the TV series that was on the S SBS recently um, from Closer Productions over in Adelaide, and it was the one about teenage kids sexting. Um, and I know that part of the uh, inspiration for that or part of the, the context it came from was that there were those terrible newspaper articles about um, the websites that were all about, um, you know, with, with school kids, um, and um, and naked photos of them and various things. So that can come out of stories like that from the news. Um, adaptations, absolutely, at the moment, there's a lot of people looking at adaptations. Yeah. Um, again, gee, it's hard when you're a smaller company and a smaller producer to have the resources to be able to bid for some of those projects. Yeah. Um, so all you can really do is try and you know get in on them by giving them your integrity and letting them know how it is that you would actually advance this and we often pay option fees that will lapse and someone else will swoop in and we can't afford to continue yeah. um, so that's that's an avenue as well um, and then uh, often it's a creative you know it's an idea or a concept that needs further work and you work together on it so it's something that you can see a kernel of but you'll take it in a different creative direction yeah. um, and then very rarely surprisingly very rarely will it be an actual script that is that striking in its current form that you go it's going to be just like that you know there's normally a big creative process from the kernel of the idea and the themes what's the best part of your job oh gosh <laughs> sitting in an audience and seeing a reaction when somebody actually thoroughly enjoys what you've made I yeah. think it would be that it's pretty exciting pretty exciting that first day when you start shooting I must say when you can see the whole team there and bang and off you go in your first slate that's pretty good too um, but I think it probably is yeah it's that also I would say watching other people's success yeah. that's that's just magnificent when you can and see having been a part of that or just feeling there might be a, a small part that you've done yeah. along the way because it's um yeah you just get so excited that other people have managed to 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 stay the distance and and keep believing in their potential and then when you watch them break through and break out by gosh i think all of us all of us in this industry celebrate other people's success yeah. you know that's that's pretty fantastic wasn't that a fascinating conversation? And just demonstrates the disparate creative process across all genres of the entertainment industry. That was my conversation with film producer Tanya Chambers. I had a terrific time speaking with her. I have to say thank you also to you. 
My regular requests and pleading have paid off, and I've seen a few more reviews appear on the Apple Podcast page. Thank you to those folk who took the time. I really appreciate it. My guest next time on Stages is the Artistic Director of the Perth Festival, Ian Grandage. It's his first year in the role, and he recently unveiled his festival for 2020. We'll talk to him about that and his own incredible career as a musician, musical director and composer. Thanks for joining Tanya and I in this episode. I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you next time. <laughs>